the music just, you know, it disarmed me. And, uh, and for, you know, reasons I can't explain uh, rationally, it, uh, it contained something in it that, you know, made me cry. It was really just a deep response that I was not expecting. Ghazi Al-Mulefi, an ethnomusicologist at NYU Abu Dhabi, has spent his career researching pearl diving music. So the point of Boom Diwan is not just to mix our music, you know, Bahri music, Kuwaiti pearl diving music with other music. It's about, you know, diwans, these, pl- these spaces, these salons, were places where people try to solve problems and talk about ideas. You know, they are in, in themselves dialogic spaces, so... Ghazi's Kaliji jazz ensemble, Boom Diwan, takes elements of traditional pearl diving music and incorporates them with other music styles, including jazz, to create something new. Ghazi also teaches a class on how to engage with this music at NYU Abu Dhabi. Humans like to identify themselves by the things that make them different from one another, origin stories and cultural heritages. And I wouldn't really fault you for doing that. I know I've done it too. So, when I first heard the music Boom Diwan was creating, I was a bit skeptical. I'm a first-generation Indian-American, and cultural appropriation is something I think about a lot. I mean, we hear about it in pop music all the time. and other white artists have literally made money twerking. Olivia Rodrigo appears to be using African-American vernacular. Katy Perry was called out for appropriating Japanese culture back in 2013. Katy Perry all have one thing in common. They've all profited from the culture of marginalized people. Boomdiwan's music is a fusion of Latin, jazz, and Middle Eastern influences. I had to wonder if the same logic applied. Meeting Ghazi actually brought up a lot of questions for me. Who can or should be allowed to play this music? Why does Ghazi want to share this music outside of Kuwait, and what happens when he does? Do other musicians in Kuwait share Ghazi's point of view? How does someone deviate from an ancient tradition without consequence? My name is Nita Tadani, and this is Uncovering Bridges, a podcast part of the Ignite Change Impactful Storytelling Through Audio Fellowship. And today, we're going to try to answer some of these questions. But before we dive in, you're going to need some context. Ghazi's family has lived in Kuwait for centuries. They were among the last three Kuwaiti families still pearl diving until it was officially outlawed in 1955. When pearl diving stopped, so did the music that came with it. But now, Ghazi is trying to revive this art form through collaboration. Even the name of his ensemble, Boom Diwan, serves as a metaphor for the musical exploration that it engages in. Whether it's about trying to have these discussions or, you know, the idea of the boom, which is the, one of the pearl diving ships, one of the, the models, if you will, is called a boom. The music or the Wan, is a place where pearl diving musicians would pass on traditional Kuwaiti music. Together, the name Boom the Wan represents a space that can include musicians from diverse backgrounds regardless of genre, style, or culture.
But without cultural context, how do people outside of Kuwait understand this music? What does it mean to showcase this music in predominantly white spaces? The Barzak Festival is one of the many places Ghazi plays this music with and for non-Kuwaiti folks. The festival was named after a place where salt and sweet water meet and coexist but don't dilute one another. Bill Braggin has co-run this festival for the past four years and has welcomed Ghazi into this global jazz environment. He is also aware of the pitfalls of sharing this music from around the world in predominantly white spaces. And I, I think that there is a dynamic within the so-called world music fields where people will talk about this idea of butterfly collecting and this idea of the flavor of the month and like oh yeah we we we've done cape verde you know we've we've been there and there is a sense of sort of just kind of collecting an artist from a certain part of the world and so that's that's a real dynamic that uh, that i'm hyper aware of Kuwait is located in Western Asia at the tip of the Persian Gulf, bordering Iraq to the north and Saudi Arabia to the south. Kuwait became a protectorate of the British Empire in 1899 and remained under British control for 62 years. You know, Kuwait became a nation in 1961, so very young, very young country, very young nation state. So when the music became an expression of cultural heritage, national heritage, there wasn't a lot of breathing room to discuss its complicated history. It became music of this very small uh, geographic location. I think Kuwait's about the size of New Jersey. You know, there were no discussions about, you know, the effects of the slave trade on the music, the Persian imprint on the music, the Iraqi imprint on the music, the Indian uh, imprint on the music, you know, the Zanzibari, Swahili imprint on the music. All of these engagements make it what it is, right? And even then, it's not really something you can kind of pin down. When it became a symbol of national heritage, you know, something that was played after a national anthem or something like that, it was kind of reduced and excluded, you know, all the beautiful complexities that made it happen to begin with. And it kind of gives a very surface-level narrative. It takes something so complex and beautiful and just makes it simple and exclusive. For Ghazi, pearl diving is not just a part of his national heritage, but his lineage as well. So after lunch, I followed my grandfather uh, into his bedroom and uh, was really eager to ask him about what I had just discovered um, about him being a shipmaster and a pearl diver and a captain. So I said, uh, Baba Aziz, I just heard you were a captain of a ship. Can you tell me about your days at sea? And uh, he just continued doing what he was doing. And he didn't look at me. He just, he just said, all the men died at sea. And uh, I really wanted to know what that meant. So I, I asked him two more times. And two more times he kind of just said, all the men died at sea. And I never asked him again about it. You know, the more I found out about pearl diving and pearl diving life, uh, the more I attribute it to uh, war in some ways. Aside from the danger of living at sea, it was also a life of debt. But one thing kept the sailors sane and the expedition on track. 
So the pearl diving itself started with the dawn prayers. After the dawn prayers were completed, uh, the divers would eat some dates, drink some coffee, and begin diving. And they would dive until sunset, um, with very small breaks in between for prayers. And this is repeated from April to September, um, with only breaks for prayers from sunrise to sundown. And they will sail to Zanzibar and India and trade these pearls for mangrove poles, spices, textiles, jewels, gold, sometimes slaves. Much like the pearls, music was traded in the Gulf. So could you give us like a brief overview on the origins of pearl diving music? So that's really, uh, that's a really interesting question and one that I get asked often. And uh, honestly, one that I find really uh, curious. That's the whole, the whole point of this, this music and this, this research in a way is, is about, is about uh, dissolving ideas about origin. So all the sailors that helped sail the ship to, in this case, India, would be hanging out at the ports for months, right? And ports are amazing cosmopolitan spaces. And they, the sailors would jam with other musicians, you know, for lack of any fancy terminology, and maybe find some instruments that they thought were, looked and sounded nice that they were eager to bring back home. And so in these months, no doubt, there was like this exchange where the Kuwaitis, quote-unquote, would influence just by their very bodies being in these spaces and, and be influenced but for the same exact reason, right, to being among all these other bodies and other ways of being and all these other people from the local population and other traders because this trade f- for, for Kuwait spans Zanzibar to Ceylon, but that trade route goes all the way to, you know, the Far East, as it were. Um, certainly, certainly to Indonesia. And so when they would return home, the music would, would, would change and would evolve. Ghazi has dedicated his career to studying the history of pearl diving music and the lives of pearl divers. But in the process, he may have discovered that tracing down pearl diving's origins is much more complicated than it seems. It's the whole thing is just kind of like amorphous, right? I mean, it's just like, it's like an amoeba, you know, it's just, it keeps changing. So its origins, or let's just say it's uh, what occasioned it is these series of engagements that just kept changing the thing, you know, and and what we have today of this music, what we have and what we've been preserving is what it was like at the end, you know, in the 1950s. That's a snapshot we have of it today. But before that, it was completely free. And so on one end, I'm interested in in preserving that snapshot. On the other end, I'm equally invested in putting the music back in this amoebic space and letting it continue to go where it wants to go. 
So we have a country trying to establish a national identity, and they do so through art and music. This isn't exclusive to Kuwait, by the way. Many countries, as a reaction to imperialism, used art to certify themselves in national discourse. But what happens to ideas around nation and identity and even tradition when you put boundaries on a boundless thing like music? Where does the distinction lie between tradition and heritage? Yeah, I feel like tradition is... It's a lived practice that has been repeated, but, but that is also not static. But heritage always draws its materials from traditions and creates new narratives with them that may or may not be in line you know, with reality, with history, even ethnographically, if you ask the people that the practices are borrowed from to create these expressions of heritage, they may feel foreign, if you will, to the thing itself. We can see that this is a pattern replicated all over the world with many different cultural traditions. Kathak and other national dances of India embody plenty of cross-cultural influence from all over the Persian Gulf. But acknowledgement of those outside influences were erased when those dances were codified. The same thing happened with pearl diving music. Why, in an attempt to define ourselves, do we erase the work of others? And who gets hurt by that when we do? I mean, it's, I think it's a very common thing that happens with national discourses is they need to be simple. But I think their simplicity can be unethical because I think it erases a lot of alternative narratives. And we're from this one particular place that is now Kuwait. Where nationalism falls short is it ends the story there. Where, where for me, I can be from Kuwait, but, um, you know, in my blood, as it were, there's probably Indian blood, African blood, Persian blood, Iraqi blood, in addition to peninsular blood, if you will. So whenever I spoke with Ghazi, I would actually leave those conversations feeling pretty emotional. I think I had been holding on tightly to ideas about my own national identity, focusing on presenting as the most Indian version of myself all the time and trying so hard not to make any mistakes that when I heard I actually didn't have to, that I could grant myself the permission to just be, it was really freeing for me. I was holding myself to standards that I didn't define and couldn't possibly live up to. If Ghazi can let his story, his heritage, move past Kuwait, maybe my story could also go past the borders I created in my head because I saw them on a map. That being said, my team and I still had a lot to learn about Ghazi's mission. Throughout this process, every time I mentioned this music to people, their initial questions would always be something like, so if these instruments are from all over the world, where does that drum come from? Where does that instrument come from? So eventually, We hopped on the phone with Ghazi again to ask him, and he wouldn't really give us a straight answer. We kept pushing and pushing for him to just explain to us where each element of the songs came from until we realized it was us who was missing the point. There has to be a way to say that part of this story is rejecting the notion of origin. Like there's, I don't want to place a lot of value on an origin story because I I reject that notion to begin with. It's not something I care about. But I just want to say, when I know it fits into neat categories and it makes people feel comfortable, but I, I'm not interested in making people feel comfortable. Ghazi doesn't want to put an emphasis on an origin story, and now neither do we. So let's talk about the future of this music. 
Pearl diving music didn't end in 1955 when pearl diving did. Boom Thee Wan's creation of Kaliji jazz is putting the music back into the amorphous space Ghazi referenced earlier. You know, sometimes when you're exploring, I mean, that's the whole point. You don't know what you're going to find, which goes back into line with, this, with the tradition. The tradition is to go out and explore and not know what you're going to find and, and to survive. So that's, that's, that's one of the points of, of, of Boom Diwan. It's, it's about, you know, being open, being displaced a little bit, like feeling like I don't know what's going on right now with this conversation or this interaction. The phrase cultural appropriation is a big buzzword, and Ghazi is still, after years of being immersed in this work, trying to figure out where he stands on how to share this music. I try to find other people who feel as passionately about their music, their culture, but are also excited to to share it, but also have the same kinds of trepidations about having it, holding it in high reverence because it's not theirs. Speaking of people who share Ghazi's values, let's get back to Bill Braggin and his work with the Barzak Festival. Bill is a part of the discourse around who gets to play, hear, and even curate this music. Be sensitive to what it means for me to be be the quote-unquote gatekeeper. And there are all these conversations about about the role of the curator as a gatekeeper as opposed to a door opener and and what it means for me to provide a platform for people to not to give them a voice, but to give them a platform to use their own voices, right? But I think even more so now, the question is, why is it important to have this artist here in this space? And what do they have to offer? And what are the conversations that it's going to open up? And I think that particularly because questions of heritage and modernity or post-modernity are really central in the UAE and in the Gulf as a whole. Ghazi strives to respect aspects of the tradition while still allowing the music to change. And to be part of both. So, you know, to be part of the space where, you know, we're learning this music corporeally, you know, in our bodies. Our bodies become archives for, these, for, these, for this music. And for example, sometimes I'll write things and before I publish them, I'll, I'll send them to Diwaniya and discuss. And the elders will say, what you're saying is absolutely right. But we'd never say it that way. We'd never use this language. I was like, all right, that's fine. Just how would you say it? They're like, oh, we would say it like this. Yeah, that's, now it sounds like us. And this is why whenever I'm asked to speak about this music or this culture, the first thing I say is, I am not an expert on this. I'm trying to learn about this. I'll share what I think I know. But everything that I know is based on discussions with my diwaniya and other diwaniyas in Kuwait. So there's no rule book on how to share and adapt this music. And that's okay. But Ghazi is working to balance inclusion and preservation. We mentioned earlier that Ghazi teaches a class at NYU Abu Dhabi that allows students from all over the world to engage in this music collaboratively. And you might be wondering now, what does that sound like? Well, we did it with our composers. You've been listening to the quote-unquote traditional versions of pearl diving music mixed with our composers' takes, with Ghazi's permission and guidance, of course. The story of the music in so many ways just defies linear narrative. I mean, it doesn't just occupy the place of a genre. It's almost more like an ethos of music. That's like so much of what jazz is, is based off of improvisation and based off of the idea that anything can be music and anyone can be involved in it. Again, it's all just on the spectrum of no one origin, but yet somehow these completely different types of music have a lot of similarities. For me, understanding the landscape of which this music came from was essential. So the culmination of culture, seascape, and collaboration helped me see pearl diving in a new light. 
That was our composers, Andrew, Cal, and Devin. If you had asked me a year ago if I thought it would be okay for NYU students to play Kuwaiti pearl diving music, I probably would have said no. But Ghazi has shown me that it is possible and can result in beautiful work. I used to not like sharing aspects of my own culture with others because I thought it meant that it would no longer be mine. Now I know that isn't true. The point of this work is not that we should be able to borrow from any culture we please without reason, but that it takes a lot of dialogue and intentional conversations to make sharing this music possible. I just hadn't seen that model before. Ghazi and Bill also talk a lot about the conversations being started at these festivals. And actually, these conversations may have already taken place before. Like that was that story that came out of one of the community dinners where one of the members of Arturo's band basically said, I don't feel like we're building a bridge. I feel like we're sort of uncovering this path that we had forgotten about, right? They didn't have a common language. My guys don't speak English. And Arturo's uh, guys speak decent English. Uh, they started just jamming for a second. And my guys were looking over at me and being like, oh man, they're playing a Khaliji rumba. This is unbelievable. They're, they know they know our rhythm. And they were telling Arturo, oh man, these guys are paying like, you know, bomba. It sounds like a bomba. So there were these moments of recognition between our percussionists that weren't even part of what Arturo and I were thinking about, but they recognized each other in the music. And Arturo says, we're uncovering bridges. If music really does have the power to unite us, how does that change perceptions about cultural identity and ownership? For all the discussion we just had about sharing and being respectful, what if the audience is still not in the right occasion to listen to this music and feel its impact? What if they don't get it? I feel like, for me, as long as I'm in that space where I'm feeling that thing deeply, and the members of the ensemble are all in that space together, all of us, and we're all just kind of like feeling it, I feel that we're transmitting that feeling. And that if you're in that room and you're just paying a little bit of attention, you're going to feel that too. So I don't worry about them not feeling it. I worry about me not feeling it. If I feel it, they're going to feel it. We've all had that feeling before. The moment before the lights go down at a concert when the sound erupts into a symphony of cheers and then the music begins. That feeling of community is unmatched. Some call music the great equalizer, but after speaking with Ghazi over the last few months, I would even go as far to say that music is the great communicator. It builds a bridge over boundaries, borders, and language barriers. And while feelings about those established boundaries and identity-defining borders are valid and real, the work Ghazi is doing now transcends even that, if you're open to it. When these pearl divers were out on the sea and trading pearls in markets, they weren't thinking about codifying a tradition. They were worried about preserving themselves their bodies, and their stories to share them with others. Wouldn't it only be right to continue on that tradition so that we can all be in the room when the lights go down and the show begins? What do you think would happen if we focused more on the music and art that connects us rather than the borders that divide us? Yeah. You know, that's a, I mean, that's the, uh, that's one of the big missions of this project, right? Of of decentering these 
reductive ideas of self. And I mean, I'll just answer very simply. I think the world would be a much more peaceful place. I feel like there's a, an alternative narrative that, that we just have to uncover the connectedness between each other. It's not something that needs to be discovered. It needs to be uncovered. And uh, I would hope that uncovering these things would make people just look at each other more compassionately. That's my hope. I don't know what would happen, but that's, that's my hope. Uncovering Bridges is a product of the Ignite Change Impactful Storytelling Through Audio Fellowship, a collaboration between the NYU Crosscutting Initiative on Inequality, NYU Production Lab, and the Wasserman Center for Career Development, sponsored by the offices of the President and Provost at NYU. Uncovering Bridges is hosted by me, Meetha Tadani. Our editor is Susan Pinkiroli. Our producer is Kate Hines. And our sound engineer is Matteo Cruz. The music is composed by Andrew Gehring, Cal Freundlink, and Devin Pride. A special thank you to Bill Bragan, Ghazi Al-Malefi, and Boom Diwan for sharing their stories and music with us.